The following audio is from Jacobswell Church. For more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. We're going to be in Acts chapter 17 this morning, continuing our series in the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, you're going to find one right under your seat, so I think you know that, but just in case. I may have told you this story before, but I didn't know how much time I had left to live in this world. None of us really do, but in this moment, I felt like my world was coming completely undone. I remember laying on the bottom bunk of my bed, looking up at the mattress spring above me, wondering when it was going to happen. Today? Next week? Next month? Next year? Maybe, just maybe, if I keep really calm and take very small doses of breath, or even hold my breath for a few moments, I might be able to delay what my older brother Jason had told me was coming. You see, he came home from school that day to inform his eight-year-old brother that his science teacher had given them word that the world was going to run out of air. Oh, big brothers, how we love you so. Big brothers have this intuitive gift of knowing how to push younger brothers' buttons. They know how to play on the emotions and fears of their younger brother prey. And my brother knew what words to use to mislead me and turn my world completely upside down. And when your world is turned upside down, it feels like there is nothing to stand upon. He used things like deception and doubt to cause me to question what I thought to be true. And he stirred me up into this free-falling panic. And nine times out of ten, with my brother, he would work. Until my mom would find me gasping for air on the bottom bunk. And I would test the truth of my brother's words by whispering very carefully to my mom without using much oxygen. Mom, Jason said the world's going to run out of air. And I would watch my mom's face change from concern to anger as she said, Jason, get up here now. <laughs> For many of us living in what some will call a post-truth era, we have plenty of older brothers in the world who know our fears and who know what words can push our buttons. A 24-hour news cycle combined with political propaganda 
combined with social media commentaries can generate a wide variety of fears and reactions from us younger brother recipients. In George Orwell's book, uh, prophetic book, 1984, he showcases the political power of the day, which was interestingly called Big Brother, and Big Brother's methods of manipulation in getting people to believe a lie. And he writes, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit, if all others accepted the lie which the party imposed, if all records were changed to tell the same tale, then the lie passed into history and became truth. Who controls the past, ran the party slogan, controls the future. But this is what's really interesting. Whoever controls the present controls the past. Whatever was true now was true from everlasting to everlasting. It was quite simple. All you needed was an unending series of victories over your memory about what's true now. Reality control is what they called it. I'm wondering if you can relate. When you look around you, specifically as you glance at the headlines in the news, are you prone to believe that what is true of today is what has been true and what will always be true? We are all prone to being controlled by our present day reality fed to us by the big brothers of the world. Those we believe are in charge of us. And we are so easily misled. We are like sheep easily guided away from the truth of the gospel by lots of big brothers in the world trying to control our present reality by the words they feed us. And we become afraid. And we look around, around to find some kind of solid footing to stand upon. As we continue our series in the book of Acts, Paul, the missionary to the Gentiles, is taking on some big brothers of the world by asking them and their followers to test their present reality using a tried and true method of discernment. What's that tried and true method? The scriptures, the word of God. And he's encouraging every person within his earshot who has struggled believing that Jesus is the Christ, to test this reality by searching and examining the Word of God. Because the Word of God speaks truth. So we need to listen to the reality that it's speaking to us. Let's read together Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 15. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. 
But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers and sisters immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, as we come before your word and submit ourselves to it, Lord, we pray that the value of it would be increased this morning. Father, as we are fed messages all around us about what to believe to be true, would you lead us back to this source of truth? Help us this morning to gain a new love and appreciation for your word. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So how does the word of God keep us from running up to our rooms in a panic when the world and big brothers around us are stirring us in a frenzy? I'd like to propose there's three primary ways the word of God grounds us to the reality of the gospel. First, it gives us a proven path to walk upon. Secondly, it shows us a suffering servant that we can stand upon. And finally, it provides for us a convincing offer of new life. First, the Word of God gives us a proven path to walk upon. Verse 1 in this passage might just seem like a GPS calling out directions. Take a right through Amphipolis and a left in Apollonia, and then you're going to arrive in Thessalonica. But Luke, I believe, he's very clever and very intuitive in how he writes. I believe he's doing something very subtle here. You see, Paul and his missionary cohorts are on a road called the Ignatius Way. Ignatian Way. And if you see, there's a map. It'll show you the Ignatian Way. That's a Roman road that was built and constructed that runs from the Adriatic Sea all the way to the Middle East. And it's like the Route 66 
of their day. You guys remember Route 66 that ran from Chicago down to California? And you drive through Byzantium and through Aperoia and through... That's, that's the Route 66 of the ancient day. Why does Luke feel the need to mention this? Because I believe it's a path that has been established before the spread of Christianity and the planting of all these churches. God was using this well-made path to found his church. And this Route 66 ran straight through the main street of Thessalonica. But what happens at the end of this verse Just as there was a Roman path established before Paul and his missionary friends began their gospel journey, there was a synagogue established well before they arrived. And what kind of established path might you find in a synagogue? Well, if you walk in a synagogue, you're going to find scrolls, scrolls and scrolls containing the path of God and his people. A well-established path that was passed down from generations to generations. On these scrolls were the scriptures, the writings, the Torah, what they would call the law and the prophets. And it was Paul's custom on his missionary journeys, as you see again in verses 10 and 11, to begin his gospel journey on the path of the Scriptures, on a well-proven road. These writings, like the Ignatius Road, that had been well-constructed and well-established. These writings that proved that God made all that they saw around them. Writings that proved that God was holy. Writings that proved that God was a God of deliverance. Writings that proved that God was a God who keeps his promises. Writing that proved that God was a God who loved his people with what Sally Lloyd-Jones would call a never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Writings that proved that faith in this God was the path in which the Jews would be part of the family of God through their faithful father, Abraham. Writings that not only proved God's nature, but also writings that asked for a response. See the path of faith? Walk in it. According to the law God put in front of them, you shall walk in the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. The writings of Scripture described through the law and the Proverbs and the prophets what walking according to the way of the Lord really looked like. It was how life worked best. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This and only this was the proven path worth walking upon. A few weeks ago, Pastor Dan and I were at a conference, Gospel Coalition Conference, in which there was an exhibit from the Museum of the Bible, which is set to open in Washington, D.C. in the fall of 2017. And I noticed very quickly something you don't typically notice on the exhibit floor of a Christian conference, an armed guard standing next to a display case. 
And within this display case were ancient parchments of Old and New Testament texts. And as I leaned down to view these beautiful pieces of Greek and Hebrew texts, written by the hands of men thousands of years ago, I couldn't help but pay attention to the armed guard. For a moment, it was like God was saying through this armed guard, I have preserved and protected these words, this path, these scriptures. I've preserved and protected these scriptures for you so that you could see my proven love for you and know with certainty that I am who I am. Walk in my ways. Walk in this path of faith. These words, these scriptures became increasingly more precious to me as I walked away from that case and winked at the guard, grateful that God would love us so much as to keep these words preserved for so many years. But let's take a minute to look at our well-worn, well-proven paths. What words, other than the words of God, are we treading upon that are serving or promising to guide our steps on a minute-by-minute day-by-day basis? What words other than the words of God are we listening to that provide us meaning or value or purpose? Facebook likes? Inspirational quotes or posters? TED Talks? Podcasts? Professional counselors? Conference speakers? Or best-selling authors? Pastor Dan or Pastor Chad's sermons. None of these in and of themselves are wrong, be clear. But where they go wrong is when they substitute and replace the well-proven word of God itself. That is right now by the grace and preservation of God sitting in each of our very hands. This word in your hands, friends is a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Walk on this path. It's proven. Not only does the Word of God speak truth by giving us a proven path to walk upon, this Word of God also displays for us a suffering servant who we can stand upon. So Paul enters into the Thessalonian synagogue and begins to reason with the Jews of the day. When it says in verse 2 that he reasoned with them, we can assume this was not like a casual coffee when a few folks come together to subtly and courteously explain and exchange thoughts and ideas about the world and about the Bible. Hmm, that's an interesting thought, Paul. Wow, I can see your point. No, 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 no. This is arguing reasoning this is arguing like this is emotional this is battle verse 11 tells us that the Thessalonians were not at all eager to hear what Paul had to say 
And what do you think made them so resistant to what Paul was saying? What did Paul have to prove to them using this well-proven path of Scripture? Let's look at verse 3. When we ask the question, what would be so hard for the Jews of the day to hear that Paul had to prove and explain? What would be so hard for them to swallow or believe? And the beginning of the verse says, Paul was explaining or proving and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. For the first century Jews, that word The word that probably got under their skin and raised their fur so dramatically was the word necessary. In the Greek, it reads more along the lines of he needed to suffer. The Messiah needed to suffer. So what makes something necessary? It's something that is required. Something that is essential. When my big brother said the world was going to run out of air, I knew that something essential, air, was being taken away and I would not survive. And for the Thessalonian Jews, they were still awaiting the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one to come and deliver God's people in a final victorious manner, just like their established heroes of the faith, Moses or David or Daniel. For them, though, What was necessary was to live a godly, law-abiding life until God, who was so proud of them for what their good boys and girls had been up to, that he could finally give them the reward of rescue from these dirty, filthy, law-breaking Caesar followers. But for suffering to be necessary for the Christ... It would mean that suffering served a critical purpose. But the way in which Jesus suffered by dying on a criminal's cross, they knew that that meant he was cursed. And God would never curse his anointed one, his Messiah. What kind of Messiah would that be to have a Messiah that's cursed? And that's where Paul had to get to work on plunging open the scrolls of Scripture. He may have started opening the scroll of Genesis and saying, Genesis 3.15. He probably didn't have verses and chapters. Genesis 3 that said the Messiah's heel would be bruised. Or looking at the sacrifice of Isaac, Abraham's beloved only son. Then he grabs a scroll of Exodus. Do you see the shed blood of the Passover lamb? Let's grab Leviticus and show you the sin offering requiring blood to be sprinkled on the altar to atone for our sin. And let's look at Job and the painful suffering of God's servant. But I have to believe that Paul probably landed and spent the majority of his time on the scroll of Isaiah. Specifically, Isaiah 53, where God's word laid out the necessary job description of Messiah. As we're 
interviewing and getting ready to hire an associate pastor, we have a job description that has the requirements. This is, these are the things we are looking for with this person that's going to fill this position. And Isaiah 53 gives us a necessary job description of Messiah. Lord, what should we be looking for in a Messiah? I highlighted some of these words so you can see and think of it like a job description. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs, and he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement or punishment that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The necessity of suffering involved us needing to admit that we were the ones cursed, that we were the ones deserving of a cross, that we, every one of us, could not do it our way. It was necessary for the Messiah to die, to pay for these sins, to provide grace to an undeserving people, to bring peace between God and man. We cannot stand before God without a suffering servant to stand upon. One who could not only pay for our sins, but heal us of our brokenness. And after reading this passage in the scroll of Isaiah, Paul may have asked the question that's found at verse 1 of Isaiah 53, which is really interesting. It's right at the beginning of this passage. It says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us. You see Paul leaning into these Thessalonian Jews and saying, who has believed this job description? Who believes this is truly the Messiah? And in verses 5 to 9, and then again in verses 13 to 15, you see the Jewish leaders respond to Paul's question. They say, get out. Get out! The very people, the Jewish leaders, who were in authority to protect God's word and live under its authority, chose to completely ignore it and instead use big brother propaganda and emotionalism to fire up the crowds and the people so they could get this Paul guy out of Dodge. The Jewish leaders saw Greek God-fearers and even women believing Paul's message from their scriptures from their scriptures, and it infuriated them. Jealous that their crowds and their financial security was decreasing and Paul's followers were increasing. And they responded with, these are our sheep, Paul. These are sheep that we're taking astray by asking them to be good boys and girls. They don't need saving from their sin by a suffering servant. No, Paul. We're showing them they can save themselves by keeping the law. Get your hands off of them, Paul. And so, 
not only in Thessalonica, but also in Berea, the Jewish leaders made it their goal to purge this cancer of grace from their midst. And what did they use? Scary words, along with scary, intimidating people, wicked men of the rabble, to come before the crowds and stir them up with emotionalism. Going after Paul's followers, they shouted in the streets words like, the world's going to run out of air. Words like verses 6 and 7, these men have turned the world upside down. He's saying that there's another king besides Caesar. We need to do something about this. Friends, we live in a world eating up this kind of propaganda for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Consuming the latest spin or misleading messages. And this isn't, it's not a new thing. It's here, and it, it was in 1647, a man by the name of John Taylor published a pamphlet titled, The World Turned Upside Down. And on the front of the pamphlet was this image. Can you put it up there? It's a strange image, but the world turns upside down. I mean, the castle's upside down. There's fish in the sky. The horse can't even move. We need to do something about this. Who's responsible for this? The government. We got to do something about this. Let's get him. Whoever's doing that, let's get him. And we could each open up our Android or iPhone news feeds, and in seconds, have our emotions charged and our Facebook tirades ready to launch when we see a shocking image connected to an emotional headline like this. This was this morning. North Korea detains American citizen. Oh, let's get him. Let's get him. Another one this morning. Trump's fake war on the fake news. Let's get him. So what is Scripture calling us to listen to instead? What is the truth we need to digest instead of these sugary, juicy media substitutes? Unlike the Jews of the day who were refusing to believe Paul's message, as we read God's Word, we need to see ourselves as the problem, not North Korea, not Trump. We need to see ourselves as the problem. As we read the words of the Old and New Testament, we need to ask God to continue to show us that we are the ones responsible for the suffering and death of Jesus. We are the ones responsible for broken political systems. We are the ones responsible for the hatred, the bloodshed, the suffering, and the famine in the world. And what happens when we see that we are the ones responsible? We see our need for a true Messiah. We see our need for a saving one. A suffering servant that we can stand upon. The world was indeed turned upside down, but not by Paul or Jesus. It was turned upside down by sin. And in order for any of us to stand firm on any solid ground, Christ needs to restore the gravitational pull. And he does this through his suffering and buying us back. So 
how might this apply practically to us? We need to ask God to maybe correct us of our picking and choosing what we want to read or hear in Scripture. Thomas Jefferson, one of our founding fathers, had a New Testament Bible that he would hack up. He would literally cut out the phrases or books that gave offense to him, like miracles or Jesus' divinity. He would cut those out. And he kept the passages that were about morality and right living and doing the right thing. The things that probably came a lot easier to him. Friends, we have become really good at creating our own versions of the Bible. We stay on the easy parts and we avoid the hard parts. We put the easy verses on the wall But how many of us have Isaiah 53 on our wall of our living room? Or if we have things like a cross on the wall, has it become a pretty wrought iron decoration? Or is it hopefully both an offensive and delightful reminder to us because it shows the gravity of our sin and the extent of God's love? Let the Bible offend us. And at the same time, show us his love. Let it show us the gravity of our sin. And at the same time, show us his love and his rescue plan for us. We need to read and study and wrestle with the whole of Scripture. Not strictly our favorite go-tos that make us feel better about ourselves. In plunging the depths of the entire word of God, we will also plunge the depths of the entire plan of God the unending love of God and the remarkable salvation of God. We have a suffering servant whom we don't naturally want to stand upon. We want to stand upon our own works, our own good enough, our own accomplishments, instead of standing upon the suffering servant who by his wounds and his work alone we are healed. This Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ, the saving one. So first, the word of God gives us a proven path to walk upon. It shows us a suffering servant to stand upon. And finally, it provides for us a convincing offer of new life. We can be thankful to God that not all of the Jews of the day rejected Paul's message. It gives us hope that even the hardest of hearts, God is able to soften. But in Thessalonica, Luke reminds us that it was just a few This is the handful. Instead, who was receptive to Paul's message? Many of the Greek God-fearers, and not a few, which means many, women of the day, were much more open to the word of God than the actual teachers of the word of God. That's sobering. And in Berea, he also highlights in verse 11, the Jews there being more noble and receiving the word with eagerness. It's interesting that Luke highlights these three populations, God-fearing Greeks, women, and more noble Bereans. Why might these populations be more responsive to the message of grace that Paul was declaring through Jesus? There are probably two distinct reasons for their receptiveness to the gospel. First, 
these three populations were culturally in a great position because they were not locked in as heavily in their positions as the Jews were. They were less afraid that a change of belief, a surrender to Jesus, would completely threaten their political or spiritual positions. They had maybe less or nothing to lose. The concept of grace was much more convincing to accept for them than for the Jews who had prided themselves and found financial security by living a law-keeping life. These three populations had a respect and belief in the God of Scriptures that made giving their life to Him a much less difficult decision than those who would have to completely change their worldview in order to surrender to Him. Second, there also appears to be a sense that these responders to God's grace were trained and thoughtful intellectuals who were interested not as much in the emotionalism and -and come-and-go propaganda of the day. They had an eagerness, verse 11 says, to search the Scripture and test the truth of Paul's gospel message with the convincing words of Scripture. I'm I'm sure I beat this drum so much today, but I can't stress enough how important I believe it is that Christians and those we are sharing our faith with and those here who are exploring the claims of God, that we more regularly ground ourselves with the truth and gravity of scriptures rather than the emotional and manipulative propaganda being fed through social and news media. I would compare it maybe to a diet plan. If I'm eating sugar all of the time, parents, you can understand this, what will happen to my body? I will never feel full. My moods are going to fluctuate up and down regularly. I'm going to be more irritable and more tired The same goes for feeding ourselves on social media and news feeds. We can never get enough. Keep scrolling. And our moods are up and down depending on the feed that we're reading that day. And we're stressed and we're exhausted. Oh, this world. But feeding on the Word of God is like a complete diet. Within it are simple and complex carbs. Protein, meat, dairy, nuts, grains, they're all there. The full gamut of nutrients that we need. Like my mom would say about oatmeal, it sticks to the ribs and sustains us throughout our days and our weeks. Because on every page, as we examine the scriptures daily, like the Bereans, we will be more and more convinced and persuaded that this God, the God who not only offered himself for us as a suffering servant, but also came back to life from the grave, will make us new again. This is a God who can have my life. What might changing our diet look like, friends? Have the Lord challenge you by reading a book of the Bible you've never read before or maybe are intimidated to read because it's hard or maybe just that applies to the Old Testament for some of us and ask that by his grace he feed you with convincing evidence of his love for you. 
Maybe take the Theology 201 course, even though you think, that's ah, too much protein for me, and ask that God instill in you a love for theology. Because a love for theology really is a love for who God is. Maybe it's starting on a Facebook or news media fast before bedtime. And instead, falling asleep, chewing on a verse from the Psalms. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. There are many creative ways to adapt your scriptural diet. But friends, always with the goal of not becoming a better Christian but instead having the Lord convince you with every verse and chapter and book that you read, he is a better God. I'll close with this. Kevin DeYoung, famous preacher, famous, yes, I guess he's famous, recalls a famous parable about six blind men and an elephant. And they're trying to describe this elephant and it's all about emphasizing the idea that we all have a view of God, but it depends on our vantage point. One blind man touches the belly of the animal and thinks, this is a solid wall. Another one grabs the elephant's ears and thinks, oh, it's more, it's more like a fan. It's more like a fan here. And then a third blind man grabs the tail, touches the tail, and says, no, 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 I think it's more like... It's more like a rope. I think that's what we've got. And on they go, each grabbing a part of the elephant without any one of them knowing what it is that they're really feeling. And that's kind of how it goes with our view of God in this culture. He's kind of this, he's kind of that. We're going to kind of make him up as we go. But the point of the story is we're all blind men when it comes to God. We know part of him but we really don't know who he is. We're all just kind of grasping in the dark, thinking we know more than we do. But DeYoung identifies a major problem with this analogy as it relates to the God of the Bible. The story is a perfectly good description of a human's inability to know God by our own devices. But the story never considers this paradigm-shattering question. What if the elephant talks? The word of God speaks. Are we listening? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the renewal that you've put in my heart for your word. That is a treasure. It's a treasure to us. And it's life-giving. It shows us who we are. But it doesn't leave us there. It shows us who you are. And so, Father, may each of us who hold these words in our hands or on our phone, Father, may these words become the words that feed us daily. Like the Bereans, may we examine them daily and find ourselves being transformed by these words. Use your word to show us the word of God.
your son Jesus Christ, our suffering servant, the only one on whom we can stand. In his name we pray. Amen.